Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. You had a good, beautiful weekend. Anybody go to the air show? No. Yes, good, because that is an impressive display of power when you're out and about and you see those jets fly by. Today, we're going to continue our study of James, pick up where Pastor Jared has left off. We're in James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Uh, Did you know in 1882, Sir Robert Hadfield discovered that if you change the internal makeup of steel... He increased the manganese content to over 10%, that the steel actually got stronger as it went through abuse or trials, the pounding of a railroad. He was the first to discover this, and it was a profound discovery because suddenly steel that could not under could not bear up under the pounding of a train or or earth equipment that, that, that digs up earth. It just would erode too fastly. And so now that this steel has been invented, it's very useful that as it went through more abrasion and more abuse, it actually got stronger and stronger. And it took someone understanding the ins and outs, the chemical compounds of steel to be able to come up with this incredibly useful steel. Today in James, we're going to see that God has done some incredibly powerful work within the believer to make it such that when we go through trials we actually are made stronger. That God has manipulated our chemical makeup, if you will, so that when believers undergo trials, we become more useful, more glorious, more stronger than we were before. And my prayer, James wants us to understand, he's going to really take an in-depth look at how things, how to think about trials, how to think about what's going on in the midst of trials so that we can respond properly. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Lord, we ask for your help this morning. Help us to understand how to think about trials, how to think about our response so that we can respond faithfully in trials. Lord, we ask that you would work in our hearts by the power of your Spirit for your own glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's consider the first aspect of trials. In verse 12, James says some words that really are counterintuitive. He said, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. I think the first thought we have in mind is not blessed is the man, but cursed is the man. But James says, no, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So let's pause and think about this. First of all, notice the link that James makes here. It's a link that makes us, if we're honest, a little uncomfortable. He says, first of all, the man who remains steadfast under trials, and then he links it to tests. He says, the one who has stood the test. 
So James is saying trials are tests. James is saying again, trials are a test in your life. And that means someone's giving the test. Someone is subjecting you to the test. If you go back to chapter 1 where Pastor Jared taught us so accurately, he said in chapter 1 verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers. It's a very similar statement to what he's saying here. Count it all joy, blessed is the man. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces these qualities. Again, Trials are tests. Count it all joy. And everything is of says, I don't get this. This is not how I think about trials. This is not how I think about tests. I do not count it all joy, and I do not consider to be blessed when I'm going through them. So when James looks under the microscope, if you will, of the anatomy of trials and what's going on, You know what he sees when you're going through a test and he digs down deep into what you're going through? You know what he sees? He doesn't see karma. He doesn't see bad luck. He doesn't even mention here that he sees Satan. What he sees or who he sees is God. James, when he looks and goes under the the surface of trials... He sees God. He has a very God-centered view of trials. And that's the opposite of what I think we want to admit or want to see whenever I'm pastoring someone over the years who's going through just terrible tragedy, unimaginable tragedy, a loss of a child. And the last thing I want to do, if I'm honest, about in the flesh, the last thing I want to do is is bring God into that. I mean, fleshly, I want to say, oh, God didn't want this. This is, but, but what James and what the word of God does, it says God is right there in the middle of it. We can't take God out of it. We can't be agnostic or atheist or, or comma, worldly. We have to understand what the Bible says is that God is right there, sovereign over this, as we've been seeing in the previous messages, that God is sovereign. That's the idea of a king who is sovereign over his kingdom or his territory, that nothing happens in the territory that is beyond his sovereign reign or rule. That's a, that's, it takes a maturity, a level of maturity to be, to be able to say amen to, amen to that. It's hard to, to reconcile in our minds these concepts. But, but James is not backing off. He says, when you're going through trials, the first thing you need to know is God's right there. God's right there with you. But he also sees God is there with you, and he says God is testing you. That's, that's even harder. Why, why do we find it so hard, this concept that God is testing us? Well, it's because when we think of test, we think that it's someone trying to fail us, if we're honest, right? Students, when you think of test, you go, I am so thankful that my teacher is testing us this week, right? I knew you did. Y'all are so godly. 
None of us think that way, right? Because we tend to think a test is a way of flunking us out. A test is someone working against us to try to not let us achieve our goals. But what is a test? In the right understanding, a test is a teacher says, I have trained you well and I want to reveal the competency that you have. I want you to see that you have learned this material and so now you're ready to go on to the next subject or the next class. That is the way it is with God. God is testing us in the sense that God is proving us as believers. God is not testing in the sense that he wants you to suffer or not advance. He is testing you in the opposite way. He wants to reveal the fortitude, the strength, the quality of your faith is to be revealed through the test and the trials. James says, blessed is the person whom God is testing. Blessed is the person because he is perfecting you. He's refining you. He's making you more glorious. He's purifying you. He's removing lesser qualities. He's providing through the test all that you will need on the day that you stand before God on the judgment day so that when he looks at you, he says, well done, well done. And then he puts the victor's wreath like the Olympic Greek Olympic Games where the victor was placed upon his head a wreath this wreath or this crown of life, this crown of eternal life, this victor's reward for a life that has proven faithful to God. That's what God's doing in the trial that you're going through right now. I don't want to minimize the pain. I know it's real. I know it's devastating. But James wants us to think differently than our natural intuition is you know if they were to build a new bridge there's talk in town a couple locations right over the years i've heard they're building a bridge well i don't know about you but i don't want to be the first person to cross that bridge right i want someone to do what to that bridge first i want someone else to test it out i want them to test that steel and that design rigorously so that i can know it is trustworthy That testing is a proving of the trustworthiness, the faithfulness of the bridge. That is more what the test is like. In Hadfield's steel, going back to the steel, in fact, what they discovered, the reason nobody had done it before is because initially the steel with this new compound that he had made, this new makeup, it was actually soft to start out with. But what they did to make it stronger during the manufacturing process, they actually exposed it to several rounds of explosions, They would subject it to explosive treatment, which actually hardened it and strengthened it over and over until finally it could be used in railroad tracks or earth-moving equipment or car crushers so that it is a steel that actually gets stronger with the trials. That's the kind of testing and proving that God is doing in the life of believers as you go through trials. It is God's way of making you stronger and more useful. Ladies, you know Sterling Silver. 
the idea is that it's about, I think, 96 as I researched it. 90, it's mostly sterling. It's mostly silver, but there's a little copper in there for some benefits. But they take these metals and they melt them in extreme heat. And the extreme heat brings all of them together and it makes it malleable. And they go through a process of, of heating it, cooling it, rolling it out, pressing it, heating it, cooling it. Because every time it cools, it hardens. And when it's hardened, it's not malleable anymore. And, and so in order to make it useful and beautiful and to shape it into this this precious metal that we say has meaten the quality of sterling silver, it has to go through the heat and through the pressures, and all of this is for the purpose of making it beautiful and sterling quality. That's what the Lord is doing in your life right now. That's the way God, this sovereign ruler of the universe, uses trials. He's testing you in the sense that he's proving you. He's making you sterling in the beautiful image of Christ. So I just think James would just want us to know God uses trials to bless you, not to curse you. It's just so counterintuitive. But that's what James is saying, is the only way that you will consider it all joy when you experience various trials is if you truly believe that God is good, as Pastor Jared has said, God is sovereign, God is good, and God loves you, and he's using trials for your good and his glory. What does God do when we go through trials? What happens? Knocks us to our knees, right? It gets us out of self-reliance. It draws us closer to Christ. It, it puts us on our knees, the place which is the greatest place of strength. It's, it's, I have this image in my mind that there is Jesus is the life source, and with prosperity, I tend to get away from him, and he's the power of life and source and goodness. And so when I struggle and when I suffer, it brings me to my knees where I am closer to Jesus, that we connect with the Lord again. We're reminded of his glory and his strength is flowing through us more strongly. He is more powerful in our lives. He strengthens our inner being. He makes us more glorious as we shed the things that are not pleasing to the Lord. This is how God is working to make you stronger. He is drawing you closer to Jesus in the midst of the trials, if that's how you understand it works. It's humbling. And as we've heard Jared say in the previous message, we've talked and and one of the things, just being transparent, and, and when I see what God is doing, it's so glorious what God's doing in Norris Ferry. But one of the things that, that challenges me and Jared and the staff and elders as we think about the future and what God's doing here is, is we now have things that are attractive. There's great music, a, a nice, beautiful, cool building. We've got a lot of things that may have drawn you here that aren't Jesus. And the worst thing that can happen to this church 
is that we get on our own two feet and we stand on all that we're accomplishing and we lose sight of the only thing we need is Jesus. When I, in my new role of, uh, that God has given me this new calling, this new focus in the city and working with churches that are struggling and man, it has absolutely brought me to my knees because when I do a deep dive into what's going on in a church that's struggling and, and is, is in essence already dead and just hasn't realized it yet, what I realize is as awesome as this band is, as much money as we could put into cleaning up a facility and making it look great, and as, as many as we may pull up 50 people out of this church, as great as you are, none of that will revive or resurrect a dead church. Only Jesus can do that. So whether it's a church or a city or a family or a marriage or a life, the greatest need we have is to reconnect with the power of Jesus. And so with that understanding, we can see why trials can be a blessing because God uses them to create a God-reliance instead of a self-reliance. He reveals through that the genuineness of our faith and even strengthens the quality of our faith as we reconnect with Jesus and his word and the gospel. That's how he makes us, he heats us up in the trials, fires, makes us moldable and flexible and malleable so he can shape us into the image of Christ and we can bear his glory. He makes us Better, not bitter. Not only for this life, but in the end, the things that we need apparent in our life, the things that we need to shine beautifully in our life on the day of judgment, the things that we need to be declaring the glory of God on the day we stand before Christ in his judgment seat will be these things that come out of our life as we learn through trials to depend on Jesus, as he burns off the impurities of our life. So eternally, he's blessing us through trials. That's why James can say, blessed is the man or woman who remains steadfast under trials. Now, if we're honest and we're going through trials, we don't usually feel so blessed, do we? Instead of feeling blessed, what's the first word we would say we feel? We don't feel blessed, we feel cursed. And James knows that. I think he understands that when we don't feel blessed and we feel cursed by God, it's not a far step to temptation to sin. James addresses that next in verse 13, and he says, let no one say. So apparently some people were saying these things, and in a minute he's going to say, do not be deceived. You see, this is all about right thinking. It's right thinking in the trials. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. You see, as you gain a deeper appreciation of the sovereignty of God, and it, it's mind-bending, but just as soon as you grasp that concept that God is sovereign even over my sin, wait, what? Oh, well then, well then this is all God's fault, 
right? That's how our hearts are. Well, good. Instead of praising God, all of a sudden I can blame someone else. And that's what James knows happens. He says, let no one say, I'm being tempted by God. What's interesting is the Greek root word for trial and temptation is the same. It's the same root word. We need to understand God ordains trials for our good, but if we are tempted to sin because of those trials, we can never blame God. And where does he put the blame? It's not on God. It's not even on Satan, though that's a pretty accurate truth we see in the Scripture. Satan is always trying to work against God's goodwill. He's going to put it on, on you. Not, not for my temptation, but he's going to put the blame on you for your own temptation. If someone stabs you in the back, falsely accuses you of something, treats you poorly, what's your first response? Well, I'm going to get them back. If you're in a long-term battle with sin against a particular sin and you've just gotten so frustrated that you haven't gotten victory over it, who are you likely to blame? Not yourself. You're going to blame someone else. You're going to blame circumstances or you might even blame God. God, you just won't take this off of me. I've heard it so many times with habitual sin patterns, someone saying, all I know is God just won't give me victory. Well, the Bible says that you have been given victory over sin in Christ. That means that the chains have been broken off so you can get in the ring and you can start throwing some blows. You've been set free to fight sin. If you get diagnosed with a disease or you love you lose a loved one in a tragic accident, you're tempted to turn away from God. James wants to be clear. God does not tempt you to sin. God is sovereign over sin, but he never will tempt you to sin. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. The reason is given in the rest of that verse. The reason God is not, the reason you can know that God is not tempting you, he says, for God cannot. It's impossible for God to be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So think about his logic there. He's saying, God himself is never tempted toward evil. Why is he saying that? Well, for him to tempt you toward evil, he would have had to have been tempted toward evil because temptation away from the will of God is an impossibility when you think about it. God would never lead you to do something against his own will. And so he's saying, listen, the character of God is so separate and holy and apart from evil, he would never go towards evil. So you can certainly know he would never tempt you to go to evil. He's above and beyond evil. He would never lead you in that direction. You have to know the character of God, and that's where he's going to go in just a minute. He's going to build the idea of the character of God, that you can trust God's goodness, that he would never lead you away from his own good and perfect will for your life. 
So what is to blame for your temptation towards sin? Well, he's going to go through the anatomy of sin here. He says in verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Ah, James has gotten to the root problem here. The problem is your own desire. You're tempted when you're lured by desire. When you fish, you throw out a lure that entices the fish. What is enticing you to sin? It's your own desire. And then he goes through the process. He says, desire, when it has conceived, this is like the birthing process, the desire, when desire is fertilized and it conceives, it gives through this process and then ultimately it gives birth to sin. And then sin, when it is fully grown, dies. It brings death. So this is the whole process of how it plays out. You go through trials, which God is wanting to use for your good. God wants it to drop you to your knees to embrace Jesus for all of his strength, all of his goodness, all his glory. But instead, if your desires are misplaced, then the desire will be fertilized with sin. It will grow fully. And that is what leads to death. So this not only means that God does not tempt you, it also means that we have to take responsibility for it. We have to say, okay, if I'm being tempted, I can't blame my circumstances. If I'm being tempted, I can't blame God. I can't blame my spouse. I can't blame my kids. I can't blame society. I have to own up to it and say, the problem is my own heart's desire. When we want to sin, it's Just that. You want to sin. Why do we sin? Because we want to. We have found that more appealing than something else. The problem's not God. The problem is our misdirected desires. Now, Buddhism says that's why we should get rid of all desires. That all desires should be put away. Well, that's not the Christian response. The Christian response is not to do away with desires. The Christian response is to find the true fulfillment of your desires in Christ. That Christ satisfies your desires. And when Christ satisfies your desires, there is an empowerment that shackles have come off, the chains have been broken from your fists, that you are now in the ring with Satan and sin, and you are empowered to fight it. You can never say, well, I can't beat this. But it takes you being satisfied in Christ. Now, to look at this anatomy of sin and the goodness of God, this whole picture kind of comes together when you go back to Genesis. Is that shocking to anyone that I would take us back to Genesis? Genesis chapter 2. When you read the Genesis account, what you see is God's good will for your life, for humanity. And what do we see God doing? We see God creating The the author of the narrative says, and God sees, God sees, that's repeated over and over. God sees what is good. He declares that is good for man and woman. God sees that is good, that he made this good for man and woman. So this whole picture is that God is absolutely insanely committed to your good. And he is providing for your good. 
And then in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, it says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Enjoy my incredible blessings of this earth for you. But there's this one tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Think about that name, tree of knowledge of good and evil. This is a tree of wisdom. A tree of temptation that says there is a wisdom, there is a knowledge of good and evil that is offered apart from God. For the one who doesn't want to trust God knows what's best. I want to know there's an alternative to that. So this alternative wisdom that does not require trusting God is available. He says, don't go there. Don't try of that tree. You shall not eat of that tree, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely what? Are y'all awake? You will surely die. And so in verse 6, chapter 3, the woman saw, listen to this whole process that James is describing play out right before your eyes. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be what? Desired. Desired to make one wise. The tree appealed to her desire to not have to trust in God, but to trust in someone or self other than God to know what's good and evil. It appealed to her desire. She took it, This is the fertilization of desire. She took its fruit. She ate it. So sin was birthed. And she gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. And then we are told in verse 15, the desire, what we saw in verse 15 of James, the desire has conceived. It gave birth to sin. The sin was fully grown. Brings forth death. The wages of sin is death. Adam and Eve forfeited all that God had provided because of their desire. So God is using trials to prove you because he knows if you are in Christ, you're going to pass the test. He wants you to succeed. How does God know you will pass the test? How is God redeeming these trials? In verse 16, we see James 1:16, do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, that's the creation language, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Verse 18, of his own will he's done this. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creation. What James is saying is, God has brought you new life by the word of God. This was God's idea. He has been from the beginning of the foundations of the earth. He has had a plan to save you, to redeem you by the word of God through Jesus, to 
to restore you back to what was lost in the garden so that in the end, when you stand before the Father on Judgment Day, he'll say, well done, and he'll give you the crown of eternal life. He's saying, look, guys, this is God's plan. God initiated this in your life. God has this good plan for your life and these trials that you're experiencing are just a tool in his hands to perfect you, to refine you, to bless you and not curse you. So when you go to the next day and you have a trial, James is saying, do you trust that God is in it for your good? Do you understand that God has a great plan for your life? Do you understand that God will redeem this? And when you doubt it, where do you go for a reminder? You go back to the cross. It was God's idea to hang Jesus on a cross so that you could be redeemed and restored. And that is the goal of your desires, to know Jesus so well that he transforms your heart he transforms your mind and your perspective. So if you're struggling to, to trust God in the midst of this, I would encourage you to think about where are or who is the object of your desire. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean that you won't hurt through the pain. It doesn't mean that it, it won't be challenging. It just means that undergirding your soul in the midst of that trial is the ability to say, it is well with my soul because God is using this for my good and for his glory. Lord, I pray that in our hearts that we will set our affections, our desires on Jesus. I pray that we will rid ourselves of lesser desires that we'll trust that Jesus satisfies our soul. I pray that each trial draws us closer to Jesus, that we will will not trust in ourselves. We will not worship the praise of anyone else, that we will not be entitled, but that we will understand that this life is a proving ground, a refinement time that you use the difficulties, the pain, the trials to strengthen the quality and the integrity of our faith, to produce godliness and fruit in our life that will be the praise to God in eternity on the day of judgment. Lord, help us. Bring us to our knees of dependence on Jesus. Teach us to pray. Teach us to embrace Jesus. Lord, protect this church from pride and arrogance. Lord, give us a heart that is more concerned about your kingdom than our own. Lord, humble us that we may fall to our knees and see that you are our greatest need and you are also our greatest treasure, the only satisfaction of our soul. And may we worship you and serve you all the days of our life. It's in Christ's name we pray.